Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for November 2023, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Leonie Herx, join us for the 10th episode of the Palliative Care Journal Watch. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the divisions of palliative care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care Echo Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care Echo Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this November 2023 episode of Pallium Canada's Echo Journal Watch. I wanted to say good afternoon or good evening, but I guess it's good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and even good night, because increasingly we've got people from not only across the whole of Canada, which has got several time zones, but also people from around the world. Uh, So in today's session, we have, as often, myself and Dr. Leonie Herx, as the hosts. And today, our guest panelists are Dr. Aingaran Sinaraja and Dr. Jesse Solomon. Very quickly, Pallium Canada's ECHO project is a partnership between Pallium Canada and several divisions of palliative care or palliative medicine, as some of them are called, across Canada. And recently, we've also included someone internationally. We used to be two universities, McMaster and Queen's University. And as of last month, we've actually grown now as you can see, the universities are McMaster, Queens, McGill University, University of Toronto, University of Manitoba, University of Calgary, University of Alberta, and we've got the Hadassah Hebrew University Medical Center in Israel as well. Uh, for those of you who've never joined us, we monitor about 20 journals related to palliative care, as well as others that aren't palliative care, but often uh, will find some important palliative end-of-life care articles in those. We monitor them, and then these different teams that we have across these different centers will then submit what they think are articles that have caught their attention, articles that confirm what we're doing or challenge our thinking, be it around clinical care, be it around service delivery, service planning across several domains. The Pallium Echo is funded by Health Canada, and I need to read this. Um, Palliative Echo is supported by financial contribution from Health Canada, and the views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. We try and make this informal. The views represent our editorial team and all the team monitoring the journals, and we hope to have an informal discussion around the articles that we've identified, the top four or five every month, and because there's so many articles out there, we also have a list of honorable mentions, which we'll share with you at the end. And these are papers that caught our attention, but we weren't able to present them today, just because of a lack of time. So I am professor in the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. I'm now affiliated with University of Navarra in the Faculty of Medicine, so that's in Spain, and I'm the scientific advisor and co-founder of Pallium Canada, and handing over to Leonie, and then on to Aingaran and Jesse. Leonie. 
Hi, everybody. I'm a clinical professor in the Cummings School of Medicine here at the University of Calgary and director of the Rotary Flames House and Children's Hospice and Palliative Care Services. Over to you, Aingran. I am a palliative care researcher and clinician out working out of Queen's University and Lake Ridge Health uh, here in Ontario. And I'm Jesse Solomon. I'm a, an assistant clinical professor at McMaster University and a palliative care physician at St. Peter's Palliative Care Unit. Fantastic. Thank you. The featured articles today cover a spectrum of uh, topics. We're going to start off with Ingeren sharing with us a study in which a group in the United States looked at uh, triggers to get palliative care consultations within the uh, surgical intensive care unit. And then uh, Jesse will speak to us about the needs for palliative care in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. I will share with you what I thought is an interesting study and what we as a team we thought is interesting study around managing thirst and dry mouth in palliative care. I think it's a topic that's often forgotten about or neglected, although it's very important. And then at the end, Jesse will share again with us a study looking at an instrument used by chaplains or spiritual care providers to assess for spiritual concerns of patients receiving palliative care at the end of life. And so with that, I'll hand you over to Aingaran. Thank you, Jose. So oh, hello, everybody, again. So we all uh, know about the importance of part of care, and this study looks at the surgical intensive care unit. And they talk about how the American College of Surgeons has advocated for increased utilization of part of care in surgical patients. And so certainly part of care is becoming more and more integrated across various settings and including ICU. And so this study looks at specifically the surgical ICU in a, in a quaternary care medical center. And so this team, the palliative care team in this hospital, noticed that the consults they get from the surgical ICU were quite low. They comprised only about sort of two and a half percent of all consults. And the rough numbers they comment on is around 39 in a year. And so they started having meetings between the palliative care and the ICU teams. And they talked about the belief in, you know, palliative care getting involved more. And so they reviewed what criteria might be needed to trigger more palliative care consults. And they came up with these three based on literature review. And that is a length of stay in the surgical ICU of more than 10 days, an unplanned ICU, surgical ICU readmission, and a new diagnosis of metastatic cancer. They started by looking at over a month what might be the manageable workload. There were some worries about more consults and the workload of palliative care teams. That's something that I know uh, we have here in Canada as well. They got approval from the IRB and then they made a presentation at the Department of Surgery Grand Rounds as well. It's part of implementation science where you get input and feedback on this proposed protocol. They did a survey before the implementation to get the perceptions of what the part of care team's involvement and the role of part of care was. And then they ran the pilot for six months. And if the patient met any of the three criteria, they consulted part of care. And you'll notice that they also made sure they touched base with the surgeon of record, so the one who did the surgery, to ensure the surgeon agreed with it as well. So the findings show that during the pre-implementation survey, there was quite a lot of uh, respondents from nurses, respiratory therapists, residents, a wide age range, and two providers had over 40 years of experience. And almost everybody believed that palliative care was needed and increased palliative care would be beneficial and that this trigger consult program would be beneficial. So they ran the pilot it led to 27 consults over the six months, which was a 20% increase. Uh, most of the time, this was due to you know, higher length of stay. So you might remember the trigger, the three 
uh, triggers that they looked at. So most of the time it was because of prolonged length of stay. And it involved a variety of surgical services. So this surgical ICU had you know, any and all surgery. So it included trauma, transplant, burns, urology, oncology. And most of the reasons for admission were sort of, you know, the classic ones about sepsis, shock, cancer was um, number two, burns again. And if you look at some of the follow-ups, there was about a two-week follow a length of stay after the palliative got involved. The notes, you know, so the number of follow-up notes were around one and a half. And almost all of them, so all of them were goals of care discussion. And the patients were involved in these discussions half the time. The, you know, again, these are ICU patients. And so a lot of times they were patients were not able to participate. And so the rest of the time, the substitute decision makers or the next step can were involved. And if you look at the long-term outcomes, half of them were discharged, with most of them having a goal to sort of improve, and half of them did end up dying, with 10 of them being placed on the comfort care protocols. And so really, there was a strong interest in part of care in SI, uh, surgical ICU. There was ongoing education and daily communication, so part of the consult team involvement that we all do is mentoring and coaching, and so getting the teams to come regularly meant more communication with those teams. There was positive perceptions, there was manageable consult volumes, and it was an additional way for family to receive information and concerns. And that's what they found when they looked at the charts. I really like this article because it touches on an emerging, and I think a lot of us are thinking about this now, which is implementation science, which is around how do we actually implement early timely part of care the one that I tend to use often is the MISHI framework on COMBI, it's called, and you guys can uh, find researchers and find it. Uh, but it looks at how you survey barriers and facilitators first. You see what are the barriers and facilitators. In this case, we found that everybody believed in it. And so motivation and belief is not a barrier for this surgical ICU. So you do not need to educate them on and give them LEAP training, for example. What their concern was around opportunity, busy clinicians, other priorities and capability around coaching and mentoring. And the other thing that I liked about this study was that they also made sure that part of care teams, you know, there's a worry about too many consoles. And really they addressed that by with that run-in period. And there was not too many consoles. And so there was it's only a 20% increase, right? An extra five to ten over the six months. So screening is a strength engagement of the clinicians was a strength. But some of the limitations are that it was still a manual process for the clinicians to think about these criteria and remember to refer. And so perhaps as opportunities for EMR automation, I believe in one of the prior journal uh, clubs, we uh, talked about uh, EMR, uh, EMR article. And then occasionally the surgeons did hesitate. They did not say how many declined, how many surgeons declined, but they commented on how over time this rate did decrease. Over to the panel. Very good, thank you. I have, I have a thought actually. Um, when I crunched the numbers, which was at baseline, they had 2.7%, 2.75% of all their consults were from the SICU. That was, that represents, if you, if assuming they had the same number of consults in the six month period where they actually did the intervention, that represents 22 patients. And then when they did the intervention, the trigger, it, it went up to 27 patients. So in a six month period, half of a year, this intervention increased the number of consults by five, which is an average of one, less than one patient per month. 
So I think that the authors are on the right track, perhaps. I think maybe the triggering criteria might have been a little bit, it could be maybe a little bit stronger depending on what the outcome they're, they're hoping for. If it's simply a number, an increased number of consults, that's one thing. The other thing is, I don't really know if there was any more documented goals of care conversations compared to prior to the study, were more patients discharged hospice compared to prior. A lot of it was outcomes just after the intervention was done. There wasn't a lot of comparison to prior to the intervention. So I, I guess the thing I was just left with was, I think there's maybe a step in the right direction, but what really is the outcome they were hoping for and was it really achieved? To me, part of these projects, and I know pilot projects get a bad rap sometimes, but I, I like pilot projects because it gets people comfortable with these routine screenings. And I know in some of the projects I've done in our institutions, we purposely try to keep it narrow because the palliative care teams especially are very worried about getting inundated with consults if the criteria is too broad. And I think... Part of that is why probably they kept it narrow. And so you're right, you know, one of the limitations and one of the things um, that I wondered about is that it's probably time to expand the criteria. They also do not, as you say, comment on the denominator and how many do they get in total, how many in hindsight might have benefited from part of care. And we do not know that total population numbers and whether this is 5% of the total surgical population or is it slowly going up because they only comment on the consult team workload. Um, and so, so you good questions, Jesse, and I don't know what the others think. I, I like this paper because it brings attention to an important area, number one. Number two, I, I agree with you, Angaran, that this is a, an interesting paper to look at from the perspective of quality improvement, identify an opportunity for improvement, and then working away at it. And it would be nice to see this perhaps in the context of, you know, the PDSA cycles with quality improvement, where at the end of a certain period, they refine the triggers to Jesse's point, they go back and they try and understand a bit more what's been happening. Okay, it's been going up, at least from a QI perspective, it's in a good trend, it's a positive trend, it's going up. So I think it raises awareness of this point. And if we are to apply a QI in our various services approach, then we could look at things like a PDSA cycle. I would maybe disagree with Angra when you said that they don't need education, because one thing that I noticed was in the study, when they asked the question, the survey they did before, which I thought was really wise to, to look at preparedness for change, in the survey they asked them if a debriefing or education tools around palliative care would be useful, and 76% of them said yes. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'm, I'm just going to bring forward a question we have in the Q&A. Um, so Ben says that it's interesting. Are there any studies looking at this preoperatively, specifically looking at frailty or anticipation of needing surgical ICU services postoperatively, and also looking at ages above 75? Any thoughts on that, Ingran? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting that uh, this question was asked because right after I submitted this article and went through the slides, there was just an article published November the 7th, so 10 days ago, within JAMA Open, that is titled Early Palliative Care Integration Within a Surgical Oncology Clinic. And it is a pre-op clinic looking at surgical oncology. So they are waiting to get surgeries for cancer and getting palliative care involved right before surgery. And so um, it is published JAMA Open, maybe a future <laughs> article we can talk about. But yeah, I, th I think people are looking at this much more, more and more openly. 
Well, I think you've already got an article for the next uh, the next episode. With that, then let's go on to Jesse. Okay, so this article is titled, Is There a Need for Palliative Care for Patients with Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction? So perhaps we should just start off with some definitions. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which I'll refer to as HEF-REF, is patients with heart failure and ejection fraction of 40% or below. Then there's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which I'll call HEF-PEF, and that's defined as an ejection fraction of 50% or greater. There's also this mid-range heart failure, which is HEF-MEF, which is 41% to 49%. So the reason why this is an important question is there are major differences in management between HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. So for example, in HEF-REF, there are multiple medications that have been shown to decrease mortality. There's now quadruple therapy that's recommended for patients with HEF-REF, which is beta blockers, mineral corticoid antagonists, SGLT2s, ACE inhibitors, versus if you have HEF-PEF, there are zero medications that have been shown to prolong survival. There have been some that have shown to decrease risk of hospitalization, which are mineral corticoids and SGLT2s. Uh, HEF-REF patients, they may have more access to heart transplantation. I tried to look up any type of data. I wasn't able to find that. But I also tend to associate these patients receiving more advanced therapies like LVADs and ionotropes which is more of the nature of the illness themselves. So the authors of this paper argue that not enough palliative care attention has been given to patients with HEF-PEF for the following reasons. They have a high rate of morbidity and mortality compared to patients with HEF-REF, and now the HEF-PEF community represents about 50% of the heart failure population, so about 50% HEF-PEF and 50% HEF-REF. Patients with HEF-PEF usually have many more comorbid conditions. They have more reduced physical function. They have a high symptom burden, reduced quality of life, and social disengagement. And the authors highlight several areas that need to be addressed, such as palliative care consultation referral guidelines for these patients, and palliative care-specific interventions for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fractions. Moreover, the authors go on to say that there is a national shortage of palliative care physicians. And for reference, this was an American study. And thus, it will be up to primary care and cardiology physicians to conduct challenging goals of care conversations and coordinate care of their various comorbidities. Of those fortunate enough to have access to palliative care, there is room for improvement to identify domains of care that would be most beneficial and design multidisciplinary approaches specific to patients with HEF-PEF. And I do agree that patients with HEF-PEF would benefit from palliative interventions such as advanced care planning, psychospiritual support, symptom management. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society, this is just a note, in 2021 did publish criteria that outline suggestions when to consider palliative care referral, which applies to both HEF-REF and HEF-PEF patients. So I encourage you to look at that document from 2021. So just some examples are patients with progressive end organ dysfunction due to their heart failure, recurrent hospitalizations, two or more within 12 months, need for progressive 
increasing doses of their medication, refractory, diuresis, et cetera. So there is a comment in there, not just applying to HEF-REF, but also HEF-PEF. And this kind of made me reflect a little bit, almost on a more larger scale, which is what I want to throw to the panel here. And, I'm, and of course, there might be more questions specific to HEF-PEF, but this made me think more broadly. And I do wonder about where palliative care fits among patients in general who are clearly complicated with many comorbidities, but an uncertain prognosis. So the idea being that, yes, advanced, advanced HEF-PEF may make sense logically that these are class four NYHA patients who are maximal therapies, but in patients who just aren't doing well, Patients are living longer with new therapies and gathering more comorbidities. I guess the question to the panel is, when do you think a palliative care consult for these patients is appropriate? And how realistic would that be for palliative care to take on patients with many comorbidities who are just not doing well? interesting to read about because I'm not an internist and I have failed so far to appreciate the nuance between PEF and REF. Um, and so this article was very eye-opening to me. And it was interesting to see how this population has much more comorbidities and they tended to die from other diseases like cancer and COPD. And so I wondered whether it's the number of comorbidities that might also, thinking about the triggers, you know, maybe there is something about the number of triggers that can help triage um, who might need us. And that mortality was still high in this group. I was surprised by that as well. Um, and so EF is no longer something I should pay attention to all the time to think about whether they have advanced. It looks like there are other things we need to keep in mind. Yeah, I had the same response, Angaran. I must admit to being fairly ignorant, I guess, in, in the difference between the PEFs and the REFs. And it was new to me about all of the comorbidities and different types of symptom burden that they experience. And I wonder, in the cardiology or family medicine clinic setting, is there any differential uh, supports that are offered between the PEFs and the REF groups? Because I, you know, I wondered if, for example, because it's, you know, rejection fraction is like a target for specific interventions, do they get more holistic care? I'm just curious, like from an interprofessional lens, is there's any room to optimize that even within their primary care and cardiology clinic settings, as well as uh, looking at the lens of palliative care? Did you come across anything, Jesse? I actually spoke to our palliative medicine resident, Jin Bak Kim, who's actually was stationed in the cardiology clinic as part of his palliative medicine residency training. And I did ask him that. I asked, did you find that they tend to cherry pick different types of heart failure patients for you to manage? And he said he kind of just saw the full gamut of things. It didn't sound like there was any type of specific program designed to give different forms of heart failure, different types of support, which is what this author is arguing, is that yeah, maybe we should be a little bit more attentive yeah. to a multidisciplinary approach. And it is quite challenging in general about who owns all of this care coordination. Do you really want to take it away from the primary care provider? Do you really want to take it away from the cardiologist? It's complicated, and I suspect that as time goes on in general in the population, I think we're going to run into this more and more. Yeah, you know, Jesse, I totally agree with you on, on the comments that you wrote there uh, on the slide about this is everyone's business, everyone's responsibility, and it can't be just the part of care folks, although I think we've got lots to learn. 
And it's interesting because with Pallium's Leap Heart course, we've got a version of the Leap Heart course for palliative care teams. And we discuss this whole issue of um, reduced ejection fraction versus preserved a fair amount. And I remember a few months ago doing a whole series for some colleagues in Portugal, actually. And what was clear was they were saying, well, cardiologists and cardiology team, not just cardiologists, cardiology team should have these core competencies. And they were feeling that these patients with preserved ejection fractions still, they, they present with signs and symptoms of heart failure. It's not as if they don't have signs and symptoms of heart failure, they do. And so simply on the basis of that, let alone things such as information needs, psychological needs, cultural needs, religious, spiritual needs, uh, that just on the basis of that, without even looking at the ejection fraction, there is a role for palliative care delivered by the cardiology teams, or if it's more complex, getting a palliative care team involved. So I thought this is a great paper, and thanks to Christopher Klinger, who found this paper and uh, and brought it forward. Okay, let's move on then to um, the next one, which I believe I'm presenting, and this was selected by our colleague at Queen's University, Adrian Selby, and the title is A Novel Approach to Managing Thirst and Dry Mouth in Palliative Care, uh, a randomized crossover uh, trial. So the key points in the article's introduction are the following, that thirst and xerostomia are significant and they have very highly distressing symptoms uh, experienced by patients with uh, palliative care needs. And they define their thirst as a sensation of needing to drink and xerostomia as a subjective experience of having a dry mouth. They highlight how at the end of life, there are multiple causes uh, for these symptoms, including medications, things like anticholinergic medications, radiotherapy, they give a whole slew of possible causes. The authors then describe how there's emerging evidence to support a variety of interventions for dry mouth in palliative care. And, and these include things like oral care protocols and a whole lot of moisturizing and saliva stimulating products. But they highlight that there be no studies specifically evaluating thirst interventions for patients admitted to specialized palliative care services. So for example, palliative care units. Now, interestingly, they then highlight how in these type of studies have been done in other settings, such as ICU, and they describe two studies. And then they highlight one by, and I'm not going to pronounce this properly, Lemise or Lemise and colleagues, who did a study to look at the use of mini mint ice cubes versus the normal ice cubes in the ICU and found a significant improvement for patients in terms of the thirst intensity. And so they thought they would replicate this in a palliative care setting. And so they set out to determine a reduction of thirst intensity and perceptions of dry mouth following both experimental intervention, which are these mini mint ice cubes, and the control, which are plain ice chips in a palliative care unit. So as I said, it's a crossover randomized control trial done in Australia in a palliative care unit. They describe the sample size determination. They determine that city patients would be appropriate for this type of study and its design. They use a purpose of sampling approach. And the usual care was plain ice chips plus other options on the unit. So on the other, the unit has this package with different options that patients could choose from them. And these include moisturizers, moisturizing sprays, and a few other things. And then the intervention was the mini mint cubes and the paper provides the recipe, as it were, of these mini mint cubes. And oral care is normally done on this unit every two to four hours, or there's an opportunity to provide oral care every two to four hours. 
So they carried on with that as normal for both the intervention and the usual care. So patients were randomized to one of these and then evaluated 24 hours later and then switched over to the other treatment for 24 hours. And then the assessment was then done after 48 hours. It's a relatively short study of only basically 48 hours. The inclusion criteria listed there include adult ability to swallow and a Karnofsky performance status or the Australian Karnofsky performance status of more than 20, although many of their patients had Karnofsky's of around 30 to 40 percent. So clearly patients with advanced disease. And then participants verbally rated the intensity of their dry mouth using a numerical rating scale from zero to 10, where zero was absent, no problem with that particular, be it thirst or dry mouth, and 10 would be the worst possible experience. In terms of the results, the key ones I'll describe now, 30 patients completed the study. There were actually no patients that dropped out. 80% had cancer. All were on opioids. And interestingly, 93% were on benzodiazepines. And then importantly, 57% were taking an anticholinergic medication. So at baseline, all the patients had severe dry mouth and thirst. So they rated this as five or more out of 10. The median for the dry mouth was eight and the range was five to 10. And for thirst, the median was eight and the range was two to 10. The mint and the plain ice cubes produced improvement of symptoms immediately after the intervention as described by the patients. So for the dry mouth ratings, the plain ice cubes decreased in an average of 1.6, the scoring, and this was statistically significant. And the mini mint cubes decreased it by 3.7, which is also statistically significant. And then for thirst, the plain ice cubes reduced the sensation of thirst by a score of 1.7 on average, and the mini mint cubes decreased it by 3.4. So the average decrease in dry mouth and thirst intensity scores from pre-intervention to post-intervention was significantly greater for mint ice cubes and 86.6% of patients preferred the mint ice cubes. So in their discussion and the conclusions, they highlight the following, that the study found that while usual mouth care and the intervention were both able to reduce the intensity of dry mouth. So remember, the usual mouth care included plain ice chips. The mint intervention had a greater response, both for reducing the sensation of thirst and the sensation of a dry mouth. They describe very nicely in the paper the neural pathways uh, that regulate thirst and they highlight through the oropharyngeal stimulus and highlight that temperature is an important variable in this whole process and that's why we use ice chips because of the temperature it's cold they go on to say that it's unclear if the effectiveness of the mint intervention was due to that cooling effect that temperature effect of the menthol or, or the cold temperature the study limitations was obviously they said this is very difficult to blind these participants so I thought, interesting paper, a study that, uh, or an area that we often neglect, and we thought we would select this and share it with folks. Thoughts from my colleagues? I absolutely loved this paper. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds Me too. Me too. I loved this paper. So <laughs> I went on Amazon because I was so excited because I wanted to, to see what this tasted like myself. So the syrup, you can actually buy it on Amazon, 600 mils of syrup for $17.50. So the recipe is 20% syrup, 80% water of this filtered water. So that would yield you three liters of ice for $17.50 plus tax. And if you have prime, you don't have to worry about the shipping. So the only thing I started thinking about was, 
how realistic is this? So in our palliative care unit, we have an ice machine. It is just so easy to walk over to the ice machine, put a cup under, it dispenses you nice small ice cubes, and then you give it to the patient who has dry mouth. Now I have to say that I wish that I had this information months ago when I had a patient who had really, really hard to control dry mouth because it sounds like the, the effectiveness was actually quite good in this study. And it's certainly worth a shot because I don't believe there would be any side effects except for maybe if you don't like the menthol. The trouble that I have here is it represents a financial investment and it, it may not be huge, but it's still something when there's a budget for units. That's number one. Number two, it's a resource, a human resource intense intervention because you always have to constantly make ice. They also mentioned in the paper that the ice melts faster than regular ice. So in terms of the two biggest investments being financial, which it doesn't seem like it's going to be huge, though I don't, I'd be lying if I said I knew how much ice somebody consumes usually in a day or how much our unit goes through ice a day, that I don't know. So the cost part of then the second part is who's going to be responsible for remembering to mix the slurry? Do we have enough space in our freezer to house all of the ice cubes that would be in a tray? So it's, it's a great, great paper. It does require some thought and planning. Yeah, I agreed. I just thought, how cool. It's a simple, like, crossover randomized controlled trial, but how amazing, like, and to, to do something so straightforward that's so impactful, such an issue that our patients struggle with. And I agree, Val commented in the chat, that this would be super easy to do at home, right? So it's actually much more something we can recommend to patients in the community. I think in the PCU and the hospice setting, you're right, there'll be those barriers that have to be addressed. But overall, a pretty cheap intervention. I'm sure we can figure it out and convince our uh, administrators to, to figure out a budget for stocking some of this menthol syrup. There's another question uh, in the chat about um, if patients can't handle the ice, can they swish the mint water? That would be effective. But I think there were, as you were describing, Jose, there were two components to the neuronal intervention. So there's the cold temperature, and then there's also the menthol receptors themselves. So probably, I mean, one would assume it wouldn't be as effective if you don't have the cold, but be interesting to see if there is still a benefit just from the menthol itself. Do you have any insight into that, Jose? No, I'm just wondering about just cold water, cool it down, you know, and, and, yeah, instead and of get that with ice. the swishes. And one last comment, because I think it's very fun, is Ben suggests that maybe we should have a slushy machine on our PCUs, so maybe you can get a, a menthol slushy. Okay, uh, so let's get to our last article, and that's going to be presented again by Jesse. Jesse, over to you. Okay, so the article is The Development of the PC7, a Quantifiable Assessment of Spiritual Concerns of Patients Receiving Palliative Care Near the End of Life. So spiritual care is an essential service within palliative care, and this is a plug for the previous journal watch. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the last podcast, we discussed a paper demonstrating the effectiveness of spiritual care in palliative care patients with neurological disorders. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, I invite you to head back there and listen. It was a great discussion. So in our current paper, the authors found a lack of standardized assessment tools to identify religious and spiritual needs, specifically in palliative care patients. Thus, the aim of the paper was to create and validate a quantifiable assessment tool for religious and spiritual needs specifically in palliative care patients. 
So the development of the standardized assessment tool, which they called PC7, ended up including seven palliative care chaplains. So all of them had personal experience in palliative care. Some were more new to the field than others. And they identified key spiritual themes from literature reviews, from their own professional experience, and from case discussions. They also developed what they called indicators, and these serve to clarify the religious and spiritual theme. Of note, they only focused on the palliative care patients. We know that our spiritual care practitioners are instrumental in also supporting families. So one thing that they just made note in this paper is that this is specifically for patients. So they ended up identifying seven themes that I'll just list now. We do have a little bit of time to maybe I'll go through maybe one indicator per theme as an example. So the first theme was need for meaning in the face of suffering. So the indicator is the patient is having difficulty coming to terms with changes and things that gave meaning to life. The second theme is need for integrity, a legacy, generativity. And the indicator is the patient questions the meaning of life, whether the life he or she has lived has meaning. The third theme concerns about relationships, family and or significant others, in which the patient has unfinished business with significant others. The fourth theme is concern or fear about dying or death, where the patient has concerns about dying or being unready for death. The sixth is issues related to making decisions about treatment. So the patient needs assistance with value-based advanced care planning. I think that was the fifth. The sixth one is religious or spiritual struggle. So the patient wonders about whether he or she is being abandoned or punished by God. And then the final one is other dimensions. So the patient identifies the needs for assistance to perform important rituals, religious or otherwise. So what they did was they also wanted to make it quantifiable. So they had a range of scores, which were scored within each theme, and they ranged from zero to three. So zero is no evidence of an unmet need. And then there was also a zero with an asterisk, which was no explicit evidence of unmet need, but further investigation is needed to confirm it. A score of one is some evidence of an unmet need. A score of two is substantial evidence of unmet need. And three is evidence of a severe unmet need. And a score of two or three in each theme indicates a need for a care plan to address this. So overall, they found the inter-rater reliability to be excellent within the seven chaplains. And they did undergo multiple revisions of their PC-7. And they also introduced their PC-7 to a number of chaplains within an, a webinar series that they had. So there were a number of chaplains that attended a webinar. They were taught the PC-7. Then they actually went through cases. And then the chaplains who were just introduced this PC-7 over a course of 15 to 20 minutes, they then rated them on this scale of zero to three. And what they did was they found that there was overall very good inter-rater reliability, less so among some of the questions, but two of the questions didn't score as good as the other five, but overall still very good. All of them are above at least 60% concordance. So in terms of my thoughts, 
as mentioned in the article, chaplains tend to gravitate to free-flowing, open-ended conversations. And I do wonder how many would truly utilize this assessment tool, both in the initial intake and the follow-up, because the idea is, in the, in the article in the beginning, the authors argue that there's a need to quantify the intervention from chaplains, which would mean then that you should have something baseline. You do an intervention, then you should have something after you've done the actual intervention. So I wonder how often chaplains will actually utilize this in clinic. And also importantly, after the assessment is complete, which is, I would argue, one of the most important things because the key to good management is good assessment, as Dr. Taniguchi would say. So after the assessment is complete, an effective targeted intervention is needed to ultimately make that difference in the patient's care. So just handing it over to the panel for your thoughts. I thought this was interesting, and it reminded me of a colleague by the name of Dan Cooper, spiritual care provider in Regina quite a few years ago. In one of the early pallium activities, way back in about 2005, 2006, we brought together spiritual care providers working in palliative care units from across the country. There were about 12 of them, and we did this process. And we asked them, identify the competencies required by spiritual care providers working in specialist palliative care teams. And there was a really big discussion, to your point about quantifying it versus an open discussion, because a lot of it, if I remember, it, it was published actually in 2010, I believe it was. A discussion was the nature of the work is one where we enter into a relationship, and we've got to develop a relationship, and the numbers get in between us and that whole process, that therapeutic process. But I did find the paper very interesting. I like that table because it gives you an idea of what are these concepts within spiritual care needs and religious needs. There was one area that I thought perhaps was inferred but not explicit. You know, the instrument that we often use in daily practice is the FICA, F-I-C-A by Christina Pochelski, with those four questions. And I use it. I find it very useful as a starting point to enter the discussion. And one of the questions is, are you connected with a faith group that supports you or a group that you feel you can connect with related to your spiritual and religious needs? And I didn't find that very explicit in this. And I don't know, maybe I missed it. Like, are you connected to a faith group? I don't think it is very explicit. I don't know that no. would be very explicit. It's not as I'm glancing at the indicators, very explicit. I think it's inferred with the religious spiritual struggle, the sixth one, exactly. the sixth theme, but you're right. I, I don't I don't think so. Because I found that a big gap. Looked at this paper, I thought about the FICA as well. And as I thought more about it, 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 it does seem to address different parts of a spiritual history, right? Where the FICA is about this overall general introductory exploration of what supports they have, whereas this is highly specific to end of life and the needs around end of life, around meaning and legacy and those questions that tend to come up. And perhaps that's the difference. Um, and, and this is a, a start. Um, there's lots more work that needs to be done around asking patients what they think about the questions that, that hasn't been done yet and whether what the course of the scores and needs are over time, because you need to measure that. And maybe this is an immovable number, especially at end of life, and you actually cannot intervene. But we also know ask, just simply asking is often therapeutic by itself. So lots of questions still, I think. 
I think it, it is like to that question of the open-ended relational versus the, you know, set of standardized questions that we can measure. We actually do need that latter part because we need to make justification for why we need spiritual care, hopefully, as part of our core professional team. It's often the first discipline that gets cut, at least in many of the hospital, different hospital settings across the country I've worked, yet could be, you know, one of the most important parts. So having a way to show how much it improves patient care and impacts our patients facing the possibility of their death is really important. So maybe we can win them over with the need to do more research in this area. So it's good that there's a tool now. Perfect. Actually, you know, before we go on to the honorable mentions, I don't think we made very clear earlier on where these different articles came from, the ones that we've just discussed. So the very first one, the one looking at the surgical intensive um, care unit, the triggers for palliative care consultation was published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Care, September 2023. The article on the heart failure, the preserved ejection fraction, and palliative care for those patients was published in, I think, a circulation heart failure 2023 in October. The article on the managing thirst and dry mouth was published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management just a few weeks ago, 2023. And uh, the last one, this one that we've just discussed, was on the spiritual instrument to identify spiritual concerns of patients was published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine. And that, our honorable mentions, as you can see, again, as almost every episode, they span a broad range of topics. The first one is aid when there's nothing left to offer experience of palliative care and palliative care needs in humanitarian crisis. And that was published in Global Public Health. The next one is access to palliative care in Canada published in Healthcare Quarterly that basically looks at the palliative care framework that was developed in 2018. I think it was Leonie, right? 2018, the government one, and asking how far have we come with that? Has that been implemented or not? So I think it's a good semi-report card, as it were. The next one is evaluation of bereaved assessment within inpatient palliative care consultations, a topic that we don't often feature, and that is the bereavement, grief and bereavement. The next one is a case report published by Sebastiano Mercadanti of Italy. And it's not a new intervention, but we liked it because it reminds us again that there's sometimes interventions that have been around for a while and we forget about them. And this is basically intercostal nerve infiltration with alcohol. To, so so it's, it, it's, it's a, an aesthetic approach uh, to pain related to painful rib metastases. The next one was uh, related to cultural safety. And that's reflections on addressing inequities in palliative care. The sixth one was too close for comfort attitudes of gynecological oncologists toward caring for dying patients. And the last one relates to sedation or the use of dexmedetomidine in patients with intractable pain and delirium. And that was a retrospective study. So we invite you to please look at these. We really encourage you to speak to your colleagues who haven't been part of this yet, who haven't downloaded either the webinars or watched the webinars or downloaded the podcast. Please spread the word, send it around. I'm sure even within your various teams, you could maybe use this as one of your lunch and learn activities, perhaps, in your various services. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank again many people who have been involved in this, the colleagues that are monitoring the different journals, and that list is going to be growing. We haven't listed there our folks who joined from the other universities, Alberta, Calgary, Manitoba, McGill, 
Toronto. I'm sure in the next episode, they'll be part of that. I'd also like to thank the Pallium support team, Diana Vinch, Aliyah Mamdine, and James O'Hearn for all the work they put into supporting this, making it happen, and then James uh, turning it into podcasts. I'd also, a very special thank you to all of you who have been monitoring the articles and to our panelists. Angaran, thank you so much. Jesse, thank you so much. And Leonie, as always, um, thanks. And for all of you who have joined us today, thanks for joining us. And with that, goodbye and stay well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Diana Vince. See you soon. Thank you.